Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Given the horrific news about the discovery of 215 bodies inside a former residential school in Kamloops in Western Canada, I wanted to discuss Canada's history and also how it relates to Canada's current foreign policy. To do this, I had the honor of interviewing Tyler Shipley, a Canadian activist and academic. Tyler is a professor of Society, Culture and Commerce at Humber College in Toronto, Ontario. He has a PhD in political science and he did his field work in Honduras, looking at Canada's foreign policy after the 2009 coup. He's the author of the book Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and Colonial Imagination. Welcome to the Honduras Now podcast. This podcast shares human rights stories from Honduras and connects them with global issues and North American policy. I'm your host, Karen Spring, a longtime human rights activist that has lived in Honduras for over a decade. Thanks so much for listening. Before we jump into the interview with Tyler, I wanted to share some really great news. Literally about an hour ago, I just returned from a celebration. Today, Friday, June 4th, 2021, political prisoner Romel Herrera Portillo walked out of the Mario Mendoza Psychiatric Hospital in Tegucigalpa, where he has been held during the large part of two years. Before being transferred to the hospital, Romel was imprisoned in La Tolva Jail, the maximum security prison located in southern Honduras. For two whole years, his family, along with the Committee for the Freedom of Political Prisoners, fought for his release. He was arrested during mass protests in Honduras in May 2019 while defending public education and health care. Today, Romel walked free. Dozens of people and Honduran media gathered outside the hospital to greet him and to celebrate his freedom. It's such a great victory. I wanted to share it with you all since international solidarity has played such a key role in getting all political prisoners released from prison. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Canadian activist and academic Tyler Shipley, who has a ton of knowledge about Canada's history and foreign policy and also about Honduras. Tyler, thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Karen. This is amazing. It's so good to talk. And yeah, let's let's get into this stuff. Cool. So there were reports and all over the Canadian media and also here in Honduras, surprisingly, about the tragic and infuriating news about the 215 bodies of children that were found buried um, inside a formal residential school in British Columbia. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeted, quote, it is a painful reminder of that dark and shameful chapter of our country's history, unquote. So many people like Trudeau say the treatment of Indigenous people in Canada is history, something of the past that's not happening now, which is clearly not the case. So can you tell us how this tragic discovery, this news, manifests in how Canada treats Indigenous people inside Canada 
and also through their foreign policy. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's one of the most frustrating spins of the 21st century is this, the way that the Canadian government and, you know, it's Justin for sure, um, but frankly, Harper did it too, to a certain extent, to the extent that he like would even admit any of this. And it's this idea that like bad things happened in the past, right? And we're so sorry. Uh, we're so sorry that these bad things happened. So let's move forward together, which, you know, if you don't know anything about what happened and what is happening, it sounds fine on the surface. And, it, and in fact, it, it feeds into a Canadian myth that, that Canadians are taught to have about themselves, which is that we're so nice, we're so thoughtful, that, that, you know, that we apologize, that we, you know, and that's sort of wrapped up in this idea of a kind of innocent, well-intentioned Canadian, you know, consciousness. Uh, you know, as opposed to, say, an American who's boorish and doesn't care and whatever. So Justin says something like that, and it, and it feeds that myth. But it is a myth. It is, a, it is utterly untrue that Canada's genocide of Indigenous people and, and nations was a thing that happened in the past. It is a thing that is ongoing. It is a process that continues. And yeah, some of its most gruesome aspects certainly happen or start in the past. I mean, you know, part of part of understanding the current moment is understanding the the weight, the legacy, and and the consequences, the ongoing consequences of what happened in the past. So, you know, to be a bit more concrete, particularly in the in the stages of around Canadian Confederation, when Canada is created as an independent country and Canadian troops, actually it was the RCMP, Northwest Mounted Police, uh, march west to to clear the plains of indigenous people. That's explicitly what confederation was about. It was about getting that land, getting control of it uh, for Canada, as opposed to like letting the Americans sweep up and and take that territory. No one uh, on the continent, no none of the settlers on the continent had any consider consideration for the indigenous people that lived there. As a matter of fact, the goal was to get rid of them. And they did that through conquest, through violent conquest, through the intentional spread of disease, uh, through forced starvation. Um, there's a horrific book by James Daschuk that describes the, the intentional starvation of indigenous people on the plains. Uh, and then, of course, yeah, things like the residential school system, which were explicitly designed to erase indigenous people, to make them not exist, so that if if humans continued to exist in the sort of bloodline from someone who had been indigenous, if the, if the humans existed, they wouldn't be indigenous anymore in any real sense. They wouldn't have any connection to their language, their culture, their past, their community, that they would be fully assimilated and would just behave like some sort of, you know, replication of a white person. That was the explicit goal of the residential schools. And when it didn't work, when they couldn't assimilate them, they murdered them. The residential school system didn't close until, didn't, wasn't fully closed until 1996. So when we talk about this as a thing of the past, I mean, most, I would say a fair number of the people listening to us right now were born in 1996. You know, this is, this is within our lifetime, certainly within my lifetime. I was in high school. Furthermore, the patterns that are established in the residential school system and in its sort of associated policies, the Indian Act, uh, the you know, control of indigenous movement, the past system by the white settlers, the banning of indigenous cultural 
and economic practices, you know, like the potlatch, the rain dance, the sun dance, these things were made illegal and people would be arrested for participating in them. These things have echoes in policies, new updated policies that continue across Canadian history. So, you know, if we're horrified by the residential school system, we need to also be similarly horrified by the 60s scoop. Um, you know, which was a different version of, of the same thing, kidnapping Indigenous children, and in this case, putting them in white homes where they faced a range of abuses, emotional, physical, and so on. Uh, there, was a, there was a millennial scoop. There was a wave of uh, Indigenous children taken from their homes and from their communities uh, around the turn of the millennium. Um, even now, uh, the Canadian... Child and, and Welfare, I forget the name of the, they changed the name of these organizations, but the Child and Family Services, whatever that organization is currently called, something like, and I, I don't have the number in front of me, but you can look it up and stick it in there later if you want, something like 78 Indigenous children were killed in the current Child and Family Welfare Services system um, in the last, I think, 15 years or something like that. Again, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's a statistic that I saw the other day and I haven't memorized. But my point is that many of the, the structures that the residential school system represents continue to exist with slightly different language, slightly different specifics, but with ultimately the same goal, which is to have Indigenous culture, life, community, economics, especially autonomy, have those things erased. Um, the goal of the Canadian state, as I see it with respect to Indigenous people, is that they should only exist as a cultural token that can be pulled out uh, to illustrate Canadian multiculturalism, to illustrate Canadian tolerance, to illustrate that there's this interesting thing in the Canadian past, which is this, look at this interesting dance, you know, look at, look at the, this culture that used to exist here and there's still a few of them left and they still practice this look they wear these things that's the way that Canada relates to indigenous nations they do not deal with indigenous nations as equal nations where they have an equal relationship and they negotiate uh, you know on equal terms with them and for evidence of that you one needs only look at the Canadian government's relationship to indigenous nations right now Wet'suwet'en last year when people on their territory, indigenous people on their own territory said, we don't want your pipeline built through our land. And the Canadian government tried to build the pipeline anyways. And so they stood outside in front of that construction project to block it. And the RCMP was authorized with snipers in place to use lethal force against indigenous people defending their own territory. That is not a nation to nation relationship. That is a colonial relationship. And the goal is that Wet'suwet'en should not have the authority and power and capacity to defend itself if Canada wants to build a pipeline. That is part and parcel of genocide. It is an ongoing aspect of the same broader project, which is that Canada is going to do what Canada wants to do. And if Indigenous people have a problem with it, get out of the way. So... I mean, I, that's a long-winded answer, and I know I took it in a few different directions, but I think it's my way of trying to articulate that everything that is present and everything that is underneath what made that horrible discovery in Kamloops possible is still present in the current Canadian relationship to Indigenous nations. 
Tyler, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are based in the U.S. Um, I'm not going to say Americans because Latin Americans don't like it when you say Americans. But um, so on delegations to Honduras, U.S. citizens and, and also Canadians are often surprised to hear about the behavior of Canadian companies, mostly mining companies, but also sweatshop companies in Honduras. You know, you did your research here when you're doing your doctorate and you have done activism in solidarity with Honduras. So what do you think people need to know about Canada's unearned reputation when it comes to their foreign policy? Yeah, that's a great question. It is such an unearned reputation. I like the way you said that. You know, I think, you know, if you take everything I just said about how Canada related to Indigenous nations, I think you can basically apply most of that to the way Canada relates to other countries, other non-white colonized, you know, or formerly colonized countries. Um, So, I mean, you know, Canada relations with the U.S. are very warm and fuzzy, of course, but Canada's relations to Honduras uh, tend to follow a pattern that's very similar to what I just described with Indigenous nations, which is Canada is there to exploit. Canada will exploit for its own purposes. Canada... Um, Well, actually, I mean, my recent book is about this. Uh, It's about the way in which Canada's colonial project towards Indigenous nations is then mirrored and reflected in its relationships abroad. And if colonialism has two main goals, one of which is like capitalism, get the land, uh, extract resources, profit from it, etc. And the other is a kind of ideological assumption of superiority. White people are better than Indigenous people. They're smarter, they're more advanced, so on, all of that nonsense. Those two things Canada basically applies to, you know, the rest of the formerly colonized world, Latin America, um, uh, Africa, you know, parts of Asia, and so on. So, you know, when it comes to something like mining companies, sweatshop companies, logging companies, um, Canada, Canadian capital basically treats a place like Honduras as if it's there for the taking. Uh, Its resources are there for the taking. Potentially it's labor, you know, cheap labor, because it's, um, you know, in a position to really exploit uh, poor people. Um, And that it's there for the taking. And that it's almost an an offense to Canada if some government should try to intervene or some community group should try to intervene. You know, how dare, you know, a group of Indigenous people in some part of Honduras get organized to try to fight back against a Canadian mining operation. How dare they? Who do they think they are? This is Canada. Um, This is business. This is commerce. You know, there's a Canadian ambassador in Guatemala who once said recently, by the way, this was in the last 15 years, who said, you know, with respect to the indigenous Maya people in Guatemala, these people have to understand that this is the future. This is capitalism. This is the future. And they have to get on board. That's not a direct quote, but it's pretty close. And I mean, that's the Canadian attitude. Um, So, you know, we've got, as you know, as you probably talk about on the show all the time, you know, Canadian mining companies that use duplicitous uh, means of getting community consent, if they get community consent at all, um, to then undertake deeply exploitative processes, processes that are environmentally destructive, that poison river systems, which then poison communities, um, you know, and kill fish and kill other species, um, make people sick, uh, exploit the labor 
exploit Hondurans or, or whomever is working in those places, whether it's a mining operation or a sweatshop sock making factory. Um, you know, and then take their profits and run, leave as little as possible in Honduras and take all of that money back to Bay Street. I mean, I'm in Toronto. They're like 15 minutes away from me. You know, these massive skyscrapers uh, that house the headquarters of, of many of these big companies, you know, Gold Corp or, you know, what have you. So, you know, that's the pattern. And it's, it's eerily similar to Canada's relationship to Indigenous nations here. I mean, I've even written about how very specifically the way that Canada treats Inuit in the North um, right now is almost identical to how Canada treats people in Honduras with respect to these extractive projects. Because it's a sort of a similar dynamic in the North where um, you know, there's a lot of resources that Canadian capital wants to get access to, uh, but there are people that live there. And there are people who want to live on and with the land in particular ways there. And it's, you know, it's frustrating because it interferes with what Canada wants to do. And so Canada, you know, the Canadian state and Canadian businesses do the same things. They trick people into signing away their land. They trick people, they bribe people into granting concessions. You know, they coerce certain members of the community, you know, to speak on behalf of the community and say, yeah, no, we really want this diamond mine. Uh, this would be great for us which of course the company knows it won't be. The company is only trying to extract the diamonds, get those profits, and then bring them back to Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. Um, and yeah, this is a pattern that happens yeah, here in Honduras and in all other parts of the world. So it is an unearned, a deeply unearned reputation that Canada has as some kind of good neighbor, some kind of helpful, you know, uh, peacekeeper in the world. Um, you know, it's all frankly nonsense. It's just something that you know, essentially settler Canadians tell themselves so they can sleep at night. So something that I frequently think about and I've learned over the years when like working in Honduras is just how to address human rights issues when you're, when I'm engaging with Canadian authorities that are based here in Tegucigalpa and also U.S. authorities, you know, folks in the embassy and the consulate. So in my communication with Canadian authorities here in Tegucigalpa, in Tegucigalpa but also in Ottawa, they often imply, and they never say it directly, but they imply it, that Canada doesn't have the same amount of clout or power that U.S. authorities have. So I get this question a lot, and these discussions arise a lot in my conversations with folks in the U.S. is, and I want to ask you, because I feel like you'd explain it very well, is how would you describe the difference between the foreign policy of Canada, which is like a smaller country, doesn't have the same global status as the U.S., with US foreign policy? Like what is that relationship between them? Yeah, it's a tough one, right? Because, because if you put the two things side by side, what's the US doing, what's Canada doing? Yeah, Canada is like small potatoes by comparison. Um, you know, they're essentially doing the same things. Um, you know, they're, they're, these are two countries that are built on precisely the same model, the same foundation, genocide of indigenous people to grab the land and profit from it, convert it into capitalist property, and then exploit labor on that land. I mean, that's, you know, that's what these two countries are. Um, they just, you know, a slightly different faction of the ruling class was able to hold on to the part that's a bit further north. So these two countries have virtually the same history, the same foundation, and more or less the same um, standard operating procedures. But yeah, Canada's a lot smaller. 
um, you know, and its impact is less on a kind of absolute scale uh, than the U.S. That's, you know, that's 100% true. And, you know, I certainly think that if we're going to talk about Canadian imperialism and the, and the things that Canada is doing, it would be foolish to only talk about Canada because, yes, the Americans are doing the same thing um, at, a, at a more substantial level. But I think, I think what we have to guard against is the idea that somehow because Canada is smaller, it's not as bad, it's not as harmful, uh, or it's not significant. One of the ways in which Canada is able to do all of the things that it does is precisely because people don't pay as much attention. Because, yeah, we're all, well, I shouldn't say we are all, but most people who are moderately critical are tuned into the fact that the United States is doing all kinds of savory, unsavory shit all over the world, right? But Canada gets away with so much by sliding under the radar, performing this kind of thing about, about being more progressive, being more liberal, right? Having someone like Justin, who, by the way, is the preferred, uh, I think, the preferred figurehead for Canada, truthfully. I think the ruling class in Canada generally prefers to have a Justin because he does the job more, more effectively because he's a performer. He performs Canadian liberalism. He says things that sound nice. He cries on TV. He's always got his crocodile tears on TV. He always talks about the environment. I mean, he's good at that. As opposed to someone like Stephen Harper, or, you know, if you think about any of the kind of conservative leaders that they've cropped up over the last several years, Aaron O'Toole. I mean, I don't think the Canadian ruling class wants Aaron O'Toole as prime minister because that guy will say the quiet part out loud, right? He'll sound like an American. What Canadian, you know, what Canadian capital wants, I think, is someone like Justin who makes it seem, if you don't look closely, like Canada is different. Like Canada is not the United States. Canada cares. Canada listens. Canada has conversations. Canada reflects, right? That was bullshit. Um, so because of that, I think, I think that Canada slides kind of off the radar in, in ways that are dangerous because it means that Canada gets away with a lot of shit that it shouldn't, um, you know, things that we've been talking about. I think one other thing that's worth noting about the relationship here, Canada and the U S is that what Canada does is sometimes framed by progressive even people in Canada as being unfortunate, but, but a kind of a consequence of the power of the U.S. What I mean is there are people in Canada who will say, look, Canadians don't want to behave like this. We don't want to exploit labor. We don't want to support the Americans. We don't want to overthrow a government in Haiti or Honduras. That's not Canada. But we do it because the Americans want to do it. And Canada just can't stand up to the Americans. Canada needs to stand up and be the real Canada. And don't just follow the Americans. And I think that's really misguided, deeply, deeply misguided. I get why people want to believe that. You know, I'd rather believe that there's some inherent Canadian goodness and we're only doing bad things because, of, you know, we've got this bully behind, you know, pushing us to do it. But it's nonsense. It's total nonsense. Canada, um, to the extent that Canada cooperates with the U.S., it's because they share the same goals. And it's because Canada can benefit Canadian capital, I should be clear, the Canadian ruling class, the Canadian rich, benefit 
from working with the Americans. Um, you know, to give you an example that's outside of Latin America, Canada participates in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, more so in Afghanistan, but actually Canada is significantly involved in the war in Iraq. And, you know, you might say, well, why would Canada do that? That so, uh, seems so opposite to what Canada stands for. And didn't Canadians say they didn't support the war in Iraq? What is this? Well, Canada did that because the benefits, the economic benefits of participating in those wars were massive. When, when the U.S. war in Iraq destroyed that country's telecommunications network, bombed it into the Stone Age, a Canadian company, Nortel, got the contract to rebuild all of the fiber optic network in Iraq. Massive, massive contract. And a Canadian company got it because Canada participated in the war. Canada helped do, you know, PR for the war. Canada stood beside the Americans through that. This is, this is not Canada being bullied into it. This is Canada saying, that's our shit right there. We're going to slide in and get, get in there and be a part of that, and we're going to benefit from it. So, yeah, to, to your American listeners, to, to people in the U.S. who have that sort of illusion about Canada, I'm sorry to burst that bubble, but it's a bubble that we really desperately need to burst because I think it's really it, – it, causes us to miss a lot of what's happening. Absolutely. So a lot of people think that consulates and embassies serve a very specific purpose around the world um, of all sorts, of all countries, right? Consulates and embassies. And that is that they are basically providing consular services to their citizens that might be in that country. Um, and that's the main reason why they're there. So for years, I've been pushing on the Canadian consulate here in Tegucigalpa to publicly speak out about the abuses of the Juan Orlando Hernandez government. I've also even solicited their assistance with consular services and the response has been like, well, we can't really do that and we can't do this and we can't do that, but anyways. Um, and you know, when I asked them to speak out about speak out against the Honduran government or the abuses of the Honduran government, they, you know, they don't, they have yet to do so. What would you say is the role of Canadian embassies abroad, um, vis-a-vis the interests of Canadian economic capital, like you touched on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's we have this very silly idea, right? That like the embassies are just these helpful places that are you know, going to help or help our citizens abroad. Um, but of course, that's you know that's not generally the case, and. Um, you know, the embassies generally are part of the kind of broader apparatus of how does how does Canada get what it wants out of a particular country, out of a particular place? Um, you know, when I was researching uh, for the book, um, and, and as I mentioned, the book sort of starts with colonialism at home, but then says, look, all of the rest of Canadian foreign policy reflects that same colonial starting point, the same goals you know, get reflected. And, and, I, and I went through the entirety of Canadian foreign policy, 150 years of it, all around the world. Um, so I'm regularly looking at cables and messages and statements from embassies all over the world. And uh, they're some of the most heinous quotes in the book, uh, right? Because the embassies are there to facilitate the interests of the Canadian state and Canadian business. And those are usually really uh, contrary to the needs of the people in that country. You know, when the government of Salvador Allende in Chile is overthrown by Augusto Pinochet, obviously, vicious dictator with the support of the CIA, 
um, Canada is deeply involved. And the cables that come out of the Chilean embassy uh, are all, I mean, they're positively giddy with excitement about this horrific, and I mean, it was viscerally horrific. There's people being massacred in the stadium, you know, on September 11th, 1973. And the Canadian ambassador is sending cables back to Ottawa saying, you know, this is great. There's a positively jubilant atmosphere. The riffraff of the Latin American left are being dealt with. Uh, you know, every, you know, Chile's finally going to wake up from, you know, and clean up this mess. I mean, it's really horrifying, blood-curdling stuff to read. Um, and of course, by the way, footnote on that, Canada had frozen all of its uh, economic ties with the Allende, elected Allende government. As soon as Pinochet took power in that coup, Canada uh, opened up full relations again with Chile uh, and extended millions of dollars of loans and foreign aid to Pinochet's government as he was murdering people in the stadium. Which, of course, you know, for your listeners who are familiar with Honduras, you know, there will be some familiarity there because Canada, you know, was fostering frosty relations with Manuel Celaya during the course of his time in office. And then as soon as the coup took place, Canada worked very, very hard uh, and through its embassy, which wasn't in Honduras, of course, it was in, um, I think they were operating out of Costa Rica at that time. Um, but through its embassy was constantly um, undermining Celaya, undermining the movement that was protesting for the return of Celaya, implying that the crisis was Celaya's fault, implying that the crisis was just, just some sort of political chaos in a backwards country, and that the way forward was an election. And then there was an election, of course, you know, nonsense, bullshit election stolen effectively by the Colpistas. Um, and then Canada, you know, through its embassy, again, has great things to say about, okay, Honduras is moving forward. The crisis is resolved. Congratulations, uh, President Lobo. You know, everything's going to be okay now. So the embassies kind of, in some ways, are, are this really important piece of the broader economic and political imperialism that Canada projects onto the world. If Canada wants to be able to exploit, you know, Honduran women in Gildan factories, then the embassy is there to report on Stephen Harper visiting those factories, saying that they're wonderful and they're clean and they're safe and everything's great. And Gildan should get a prize. Gildan, in fact, other Honduran employers should learn from Gildan because Gildan is one of the most, the leaders of corporate social responsibility. That all happened. As you know, that all happened. That's, that literally is something that happened. These are some of the worst employers in Honduras, some of the most exploitative. Literally, workers have been killed for trying to order or organize unions in those factories. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of my answer to your question about the embassies, that they, they perform this kind of front role. You know, say the right things, say them nicely but do the quiet work of supporting Canadian capital in whatever, in whatever particular place they're located. And they, and they do this all over the world. I could give you examples from Indonesia. I could give you examples from Congo. Uh, you know, it would, they would, and they would all ring with the same kind of patterns, you know, slightly different details, but the same patterns. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of putting it, Tyler. Um, so as you and I are having these, this conversation, we're, we're two white Canadians having this discussion. You know, you've really done a good job at sort of um, describing Canada's history and ongoing 
um, racist policies towards Indigenous people in Canada and then how that relates to foreign policy. I'm here in Honduras, you're in Toronto. I think it's important to be clear and to tell people about what our role is in changing Canada's policies, you know, in Canada, but also its foreign policies. And foreign policy doesn't get very much attention um, in general um, in Canada and the United States. So, you know, my last question for you is what is the role of white Canadians and not just activists, but just like people that are interested in these issues in changing Canada's imperialist policies towards indigenous people globally. So in Canada and then elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question, really, um, if you take it seriously, right? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of easy answers that that would sound, you know, fine, but that aren't satisfying to me. You know, there's a lot of stuff about ally and allyship out there. Uh, you know, listen to indigenous voices, right? So it's very blase, simplistic things like that um, that I could say, but that I wouldn't I wouldn't feel about because they're not substantive enough. They're not complex enough. They don't understand the complexities of these things. So I don't have an easy answer for you. Um, but, I, but I guess a few things I could say, you know, for one thing, um, I think settlers in Canada, white or otherwise, frankly, all settlers in Canada um, have a responsibility to know the history of the conquest of this land, know how we came to be on this land. However, whatever our process was that we got there, that our ancestors got there, why is this land called Canada? And, and how did it become that? Um, I think that's a responsibility. That's a starting, a very, very first starting point um, is to know that history. I think, I think a second crucially important piece is... Um, to reckon with our responsibility for it. And I'm choosing my words carefully because I, I don't think guilt is the right word, you know? Um, and it's, guilt is maybe part of a process that can happen for people. You know, people I've known, my students, you know, my mom, you know, my mom and I talk on the phone all the time about things. And my mom is a very thoughtful, smart woman you know, but, you know, a, a white person from Manitoba who hasn't, you know, in her lifetime, didn't spend a lot of time thinking through these things. And in the last five years, I, th I think there's been some shift in the, the discourse in Canada and the mainstream ways in which these things are being talked about. And my mom is trying at some level, and I appreciate that. And I think a lot of people, a lot of white people are at some level trying. Um, but I think you know, feeling guilty, feeling bad about what happened is a bit of a dead end. Um, it's a dead end that centers our own experience. You know, oh, I feel so awful about this thing that happened. I'm feeling so sad. You know, good for you, but what are you going to do about it? Um, what responsibility are you going to take? How are you going to change this, this ongoing process? How are you, you know, you're, you're upset about what happened or what was discovered to have happened outside of Kamloops. Okay, good. Be upset about it. And now tell me precisely what action you want to take. For instance, are you going to pressure the Canadian government to follow the terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and investigate every site for other mass graves so that at the very least we can acknowledge the scope, the scale of what happened in those schools 
and 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 reckon honestly with what happened. And this is a tiny step that should already be a given, but Justin Trudeau's government, for all his crocodile tears, continues to refuse to do that, continues to fight lawsuits in court about these very kinds of issues. So, so as a white Canadian, what concrete tasks will people take on um, you know, that will that will counteract the concrete effects of Canadian colonialism and imperialism. You know, not, not putting a every child matters thing on your Facebook picture, because frankly, I mean, go ahead and do that. And, and it raises some awareness, but honestly, awareness isn't the thing. We don't need more awareness here. We need concrete action. The next time there is a blockade of a pipeline that is being built through indigenous territory and the RCMP are having a standoff with indigenous land defenders, Go and stand with the indigenous land defenders. Physically stand there. Uh, you know, these things are happening everywhere. It's not just with Sowetan. There's a blockade 50 miles southwest-ish of me uh, at Six Nations, you know, that is ongoing. There are, these things are happening, you know, everything that happened in Nova Scotia, uh, you know, last fall or whenever that was. So concrete tasks. And, and I think that applies to foreign policy too. And it may seem harder because it's further away, you know, but at some level, it's, it's actually not that different because, you know, you can pressure the Canadian government to, you know, just as easily as you can pressure the Canadian government to search those sites, you can pressure the Canadian government to intervene in Honduras to get political prisoners released. And we know that, you and I, because your, your mom and your community in, on, here in Ontario organized to do some of that work and actually had some success you know, a small community getting organized had some success in pressuring the Canadian government to demand that the Honduran government release some political prisoners. And, you know, it didn't change the whole thing. Uh, you know, problems are ongoing, but it was a positive step and it inspired other things and it can inspire other things. So everything I'm saying here is first steps. Like, you know, ultimately, Ultimately, we need a revolutionary movement that's going to overthrow the state and, and you, know, you know, radically reshape the way that the, this, this place operates. That's ultimately what we need. That's but since so most funny. people aren't, you know, are ready to do that, uh, you know, there are still small concrete steps we can take. So I hope that helps. It's a hard question, right? And, and, and it, I didn't give, I probably didn't give a satisfying, easy answer, but that's partly by design because I don't think there is one. I think you're right. I just, I had to ask you because I get that question a lot and I think people want easy answers and it's really not. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and just persistence and consistency that um, not a lot of people are committed to doing really. And also, and, to and be you know what? Mm -hmm. Oh no, sorry to interrupt you, Karen, because actually what I wanted to say is that in some ways, what you have done over the last, like, what is it? 15 years now that you've been almost 15 years that you've been partially living in and working in Honduras. I mean, that in some ways is the model of what you can do. No, no, no. I, I mean it because what you've done in Honduras over the last 15 years is that you have respectfully and consistently become part of, you know, become an, a, a, an element of and, and in relationship with the social movement in Honduras. You've listened to people. You've listened to a lot of different people. You know, you don't just listen to one person and then 
you know, go gangbusters on whatever that one person said as if that represents all of Honduras. No, you've taken the time to actually get the lay of the land, talk to a lot of people, get to know the country, get to know people, get to know the problems, and then try to rearticulate them to other white Canadians that need to know this stuff. So, you know, I don't mean to, you know, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. I mean, you know, this isn't a, you know, I genuinely think that what you've done in Honduras is one way that you can be a solid, you know, white person struggling against colonialism. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize that you don't have to travel all the way to Honduras to do that. Right. I mean, people don't, you don't have to be here. There's so many different spaces that people can do this work. Like you said, go and stand beside indigenous people as they're standing down with the RCMP against the RCMP. Right. Or in the classroom, teaching students to open their eyes. Okay, Tyler. So where can people find you online? And I want you to specifically mention your Facebook page that you manage that is, I think it's the similar same name as your book, Canada in the World. Your full book's name is Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and Colonial Imagination. Where can people find you online and how can they Yeah, your- uh, book is available at the Fernwood Books uh, website. It's also, you can also contact me directly and uh, I can offer discounts, slight discounts on the price of the book uh, if, it's, if it's a little steep. And yeah, I mean, I think people interested in, in this work and this stuff, Twitter is probably the best place, better even than Facebook. There's a Twitter account that is at Canada in the world, although it's WRLD. It's easy enough to find. Uh, and it's a, it's a Twitter account for the book. And I post threads um, that kind of go into some detail about different pieces of what I write in the book. And there's pictures and videos and stuff. And I think that that can be a useful place. There is also a Facebook page uh, that is Canada in the world. And then I have my own Twitter account too. It's, it's at Le Shipster, Le underscore underscore shipster. Yeah, that's, that's sort of where you, where you'll find these things. And I, you know, I wanted before I, before we finish, I wanted to echo what you last said, because the last thing you said was really important. You mentioned teaching and, and I didn't mean to be too, I think I was too dismissive about awareness raising there. It is important to talk to people. It's important. If you're a teacher, it's important to teach these things in the classroom, to teach them thoughtfully, you know, to find critical resources, you know, not just teach the same old Canadian story, but actually dig into the details, whether it's my book or other books, and and also to have those conversations with the people in our lives. To bring it back to my mom, for whatever reason, this is in my head. You know, my mom said to me last summer that that she, after everything that was going on in the U.S. during after the George Floyd murder, uh, my mom said, you know, I have a friend who sometimes, you know, will say racist things when we're on the phone, and it makes me so uncomfortable. But I I don't. I just ignore it. I just move on. And my mom is very unconfrontational. Like, you know, she doesn't want to have a fight with anyone about anything. She's scared of that kind of thing. But she said to me, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let that go anymore. You know, if this person says something, I'm going to confront that. And that's very small and it's very personal. But if that kind of thing gets done, if more people do that work with their friends, with their family, with their coworkers, with their bosses, if necessary, you know, and, and, and we start doing that ideological work, it does matter because part of the way Canada gets away with doing the things that it does is that the majority of people in Canada basically think it's okay. Basically at some level think, yeah, well, you know, indigenous people aren't using the land properly anyways, we need a pipeline. Or, you know, people in Honduras are backwards, they don't, you know, whatever, I don't know what's going on down there, it's chaos, it's crazy. 
know, there's all these ways that Canadians justify ignoring these problems. And if we do that work that you're describing in the classroom, you know, with our friends and families and start building more of a consciousness about what's happening, it does matter. Maybe not as much as some people want us to think, you know, actions matter more, but the talking matters too. So yeah, I just wanted to sort of bring that point back and kind of echo it. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good place to to leave off. So Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure to have you. You really are just like a wealth of knowledge. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the Thanks, show. Thanks, Karen. Great to talk to you. That's the show for today. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. As always, you can find the show notes at HondurasNow.org. And just to share some more good news with you all, the Honduras Now podcast was recently named as one of the top 20 human rights podcasts by prettyprogressive.org. And it was also recently featured as a podcast that all should listen to by Honduran fashion magazine called Auge Boda. Thank you to my monthly supporters. With your support, I am able to keep this podcast going. Until next time, I'm Karen Spring. Hasta pronto. Cinco estrellas de pálido azul En tu emblema que un mar rumoroso Con sus ondas bravigas escuda De un volcán tras la cima de su Hay un astro de nitidad